Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Betsy Timboom, Promise of God, by Mike Evans, with permission from Time Worthy Books. We are on chapter 24. A few months ago, rumors circulated around Harlem that the Germans were preparing to invade the Netherlands. Nothing in the newspaper or reports on the radio confirmed it. But talk around town suggested the German Air Force wanted to use our airfields to stage a defense against the British bombers. Others suggested that the Germans wanted to launch an attack on England. Queen Wilhelmina assured us repeatedly that there would be no capitulation, but throughout the winter and early spring, high-ranking officials made repeated trips to Berlin. They also made a point of insisting in every speech and at every public event that we had made our neutrality clear and had not violated its principles. In May, the Prime Minister, Dirk Jan de Geer, returned to The Hague from yet another trip to Berlin. The night he returned, he made a formal radio address to the nation and assured us that Germany would not attack. Once again, he reiterated that he had been conducting discussions with the German representatives who assured him Dutch neutrality would be respected. We went to bed that night thinking there was hope. Within a few hours, however, a loud rumbling shook me awake, and I lay in bed, wondering what could possibly be happening. At first, too afraid and bewildered to move. Through the curtains on the window, I saw great flashes of light, some of them very close and more brilliant than any lightning I'd ever seen. The sound of it reverberated through the house so strongly it shook the pictures on the wall. After a few minutes, curiosity got the better of me, and I rose from my bed, crept to the window, and held back the curtain with my hand. As I stood there gazing into the distance, a flash from the direction of the airfield illuminated the night sky, and for an instant I could see in the foreground a column of smoke rising in the air. Another burst to my left took my eyes to that direction, followed by another to the right, and then I heard the sounds of airplanes flying overhead and realized what was happening. We were being bombed. Minutes later, I heard footsteps behind me and turned to see Corey coming from the hall. Her eyes were wide and her face had a look of panic. What's happening? Her voice was a little more than a whisper, but the fear in it was no less gripping than a terrified scream. The Germans, I said calmly, motioning her to my side. She stood next to me and I slipped my arm around her waist. They appeared to be bombing the airport. I thought they wanted to use the airport. That was a rumor, wasn't it? Yes, Corey nodded, and I might add, the rumors were far more accurate than the Prime Minister. She stood there with me a moment longer watching out the window, then rested her head on my shoulders. Aren't you afraid? I was when I woke, but I'm not now. I turned away from the window. Come on, let's have some tea. There was no use staying there watching the destruction of our country, and we certainly weren't going to go back to sleep any time soon as we might as well have something warm to drink. In the kitchen, I put on the kettle and found some cookies in the cupboard. There was bread from breakfast that previous morning, and I found jam to put on it. By the time I had that on the table, the water in the kettle was hot, and I poured it in the teapot with a few leaves of tea. We sat at the table, sipping and eating as the bombs exploded around us. Overhead, we heard the drone of bombers and the whining sound of fighters as they fought through the night. This is not going as we expected, I said finally. No, Corey replied with a shake of her head. I suppose Hitler is no longer just a German problem. War is coming. War is here, Corey noted. We must get ready. Our army is brave, 
but it cannot hold against the Germans. I have a feeling this will end badly for us. Very badly for us all. Corey looked up from her teacup. I heard you talking with William that day when we went to see their new home. You think the rumors about the way the Germans treat the Jews are true? Yes, I know they are. Corey was concerned. Will it be like that here? I'm afraid so. And we will face the same dilemma that confronted the Jews, which was whether to do something about what we see or ignore it. I still don't know what we could possibly do to stop it. Nor do I. But we have to try. We sat there a while, nibbling on the bread and sipping another cup of tea. Finally, Corey said quietly, I had this dream. I've had it several times the past few months. What about? We're riding in the back of a wagon. You, me, Papa, William, and others we know. Soldiers were guarding us, and a crowd is gathered to watch as we ride in that wagon across the square at Groutmark. Hearing someone else's dream is never as compelling as having your own. But I tried to seem interested. Is it a good dream? No, Corey shook her head. It's a dreadful one. While she was talking, I was thinking of my own reoccurring dream, and I wondered if I should tell her about it. She was my sister, after all, and she had been brave enough to tell me hers. So after we sat there a while longer, I said, I've had a dream, too. And in that dream, I was floating in the air above a very large house with a lawn and gardens filled with tulips. The flowers are in full blossom, and you are there tending with others, old and young and men and women. That sounds like a peaceful dream. Yes, I nodded. It is, actually. But I've had it a number of times while I was sleeping, and I saw it when we were leaving William's new house that day. Corey's eyes opened wider. You saw it? Yes, I nodded, without being asleep. Yes. She gave a musing nod, and we fell silent again both of us ruminating over what we'd heard from the other. A little while later, Corey glanced around with a look of realization. The bombing has stopped. Yes, it has, I answered, realizing it for the first time as well, and we should probably get back to bed. I pushed myself up from the chair and stood. We can sleep a few more hours before dawn. I heard the sound of Corey's footsteps as she trugged up to her room on the next floor. I gathered the cups and plates from the table, but no sooner had I set them on the counter than once again I heard the sound of footsteps on the stairs, this time coming down. A moment later, Corey appeared in the kitchen doorway. Her eyes were wide with fright, and she held a jagged metal object and blood trinkling from her index finger. There's a hole in the roof, and this was lying on my pillow, she exclaimed, so excited she could hardly speak. It was lying right where my head would have been. It's a piece of metal shrapnel from the bombing. Her lips trembled. If I hadn't come downstairs, I pressed my finger to her lips. Shh, we're not going to speculate about that. But if I hadn't come down to your room and we hadn't... There is safety in God's will, I said, interrupting her. He has protected us to now and he will continue to protect us. But we must stay at the heart of his will, no matter what the circumstances may suggest to the contrary. Five days after the bombing started, with Rotterdam in Nazi hands and Europe on the verge of capitulation, General Winkelmann, commander of the Netherlands Armed Forces, surrendered. Queen Wilhelmina, the Prime Minister, and most of the government fled to England just hours ahead of the advancing German army. We listened to the reports of it on the radio, and I felt like crying. Within days of our surrender, German soldiers occupied Harlem. Unlike the warm reception they received in Austria, Few in the Netherlands welcomed their presence. 
but they had money to spend and didn't mind doing so. During the summer and into the fall, our shop was more profitable than ever. We sold every watch and clock, even items that had been on the shelf for a long time. Though we could not readily restock, we were glad for the business. As fall approached, the Germans invited Queen Wilhelmina and other officials to return to The Hague and cooperate in governing the country. Prime Minister de Geer agreed with the proposal and wanted to return, but the Queen refused and dismissed him. As a result, Arthur Seisenkort, an Austrian Nazi, was named by Hitler to govern the country. A few weeks after that, the Germans imposed a curfew that required us to be off the streets by eight each evening. Shortly after that, they issued orders requiring everyone to obtain and carry an identification card. And that is how the Germans operated, slowly, methodically, one step at a time. No single individual step was too objectionable, but each one moving us closer to their goal of absolute control over our lives. I bristled at the thought of having to carry a card, but there was little option other than to obey. Without the card, we couldn't conduct business of any type, not even to make purchases at the grocery or even at the vendors at the grout mart. So I went with Corey and Papa to the homeland office to get the card. As we stood in line that day, I saw Vincent sitting at a desk behind the clerk's counter. He saw us but looked quickly away. I was appalled at the thought of him working with the Nazis. Not long after that, a food office was, was established supposedly to ensure adequate food supply. Shortly after that, rationing began. Each adult was required to report to the food office to obtain a ration card, which allowed us to make purchase of specific restricted food items. Once again, we tracked to the government office and stood in line to register for a card. And once again, I saw Vincent. This time, I made my way down the main corridor towards the registrar's office. He was seated at a desk in an office off the hall. Only this one had a window, and he was dressed as if he was in charge. I wanted to barge in there and scream at him to bring him to his senses, but instead I continued down the hallway and lined up with everyone else. If he was stupid enough to believe the Germans, then he could meet his fate with them. The line for the cards was long, and everyone was irritable. So I did my best to keep quiet and wait patiently. All the while, though, I thought of Vincent, and the longer I stood there, the madder I became. In a little while, one of the office assistants appeared at my side and instructed me to follow her. By then, my patience had worn thin. I've been waiting over an hour, I protested, and if I get out of line, I'll lose my place. Follow me, she repeated, this time nudging me at the elbow. A guard stood in the corner, and when he heard us talking, he started in our direction. Rather than face him, I followed the woman back up the corridor. A moment later, she led me to Vincent's office and gestured for me to enter. I paused at the doorway, wondering, wondering whether to go inside or simply leave. His eyes were focused on a file that lay on the desktop, and when he didn't look up at me, I decided to leave. But as I glanced back over my shoulder towards the hall, the woman who was with me gave a stern look, and so, resigned to nothing but an exercise in the waste of time, I stepped into the office and took a seat. Behind me, I heard the click of footsteps as the woman disappeared up the hall. When she was a safe distance away, Vincent looked up at me and said, I saw you last month at the Homeland office. I wanted to... What are you doing here with these people? I snapped, cutting him off. Are you crazy? Have you become one of them? No, he answered hesitantly. Then he lowered his voice and leaned forward. I am not a Nazi, just a Dutch civil servant trying to make a living and keep alive. But you're obviously working for them. I continued, why did you do that? Why did you agree to work for the Nazis? 
I didn't agree to work for them, he explained. I took the job with the Homeland Office because it was better than reading electrical meters. They liked the way I work with numbers at Homeland, and when this office opened, they put me in charge. What happened to the university and all the things you talked about? I ran out of money after the first year and couldn't find a way to stay in school other than study for the ministry, and that wasn't my calling. I didn't want to just do it for the money to stay in school. His comment made me think of Carol and the reasons he studied for the ministry, all of which I found reprehensible. Vincent's attitude was commendable, but I was still troubled seeing him working in that office. Well, I sighed, doing my best to give him the benefit of the doubt. We're all just doing the best we can. A few minutes later, a clerk appeared in the office doorway. Vincent caught her eye and nodded. She stepped near my chair and thrust a ration card toward me. It's marked for renewal, she said, but you'll have to retrieve them from the office. Each month, Vincent added, you have to return to the office to pick up a new one each month. Do I have to stand in line? Not that line, he answered, gesturing towards the far end of the hall. And it'll move faster, too. I stood and smiled over at him. I suppose I should be going. I gestured with the card. Thanks. Certainly, he replied, and before I was out of the door, he turned his attention to the papers on his desk. At home that evening, while we ate supper, I mentioned Vincent's situation to Papa and Corey. We all agreed that if the country was to have a future, we had to find a way to survive. And with the Germans in control, survival would likely mean some form of cooperation. We've sold him every watch and clock in the shop, Papa added. Was that wrong, Corey asked. Well, Papa smiled, we didn't refuse them. That wasn't so difficult and no one would have expected anything different from us, I suggested. It also caused no one any harm. But we may face some tough decisions yet. Corey glanced over at me. What do you mean? Many of our customers are Jewish. Most of the best ones, Papa added. Corey still had a questioning look. And how is that a bad thing? What if the Germans treat them here the same way they do in Germany, I asked. What if they pluck the beards of the old men, beat them on the street, and then turn them out of their shops? What will we do then? We would lose most of our business, Corey replied. We could lose more than that, Papa corrected, depending on how we answer Betsy's question. Corey looked across the table at him. You mean, do we help them or ignore them? Precisely, Papa nodded. We have no choice but to help them, she added. No choice at all, I added. It was not an easy decision, nor was it one that we made that evening over supper. I don't know when Corey decided... But I'd made that decision long before that evening and confirmed it to myself during the trip with William to the refugee camp. I do not regret it, and I would make the same decision a thousand times over, but no one should think that I came to it lightly or from a romantic sense of gallantry. None of us did. For the remainder of the evening, we sat in the parlor and listened to the radio. After the news reports from London, Papa switched to the Berlin station and we listened to the symphony. Normally, we would have gone to bed then, but instead he turned the radio back to the London station and we listened to recorded music. The hour was well past my typical bedtime when I finally retired to my room. Though I was tired, I could not fall immediately asleep. Instead, I lay there staring up at the ceiling, listening to the sounds of the night and imagining the horrors that might befall us. When I finally did get to sleep, I dreamed the dream again, of soaring high over a large house with lush grounds and flower beds filled with tulips. Men and women tended the gardens, and Corey was with them. 
Sometime before morning I awakened with a start to find my gown soaked through with sweat. Rather than risk a chill, I climbed from bed and made my way across the room to the dresser to change. As I slipped on a fresh gown, Corey appeared at my bedroom doorway. I heard you, she whispered. Are you okay? Glancing at her, I said, I had the dream. Again? One of many times. Why were you awake? I've been lying in bed for three hours wondering what will happen to us. The discussion tonight disturbed you? I asked as I crawled into bed. She lifted the cover and got in beside me. What will happen to us? I don't know, but whatever it is, we shall face it together. I reached over and took her hand. We shall face it together, I repeated softly. Then we both drifted off to sleep. And next week it will be chapter 25. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.